final hour of our Wednesday program traditionally left, right, and center. Jeff Schlemmer on vacation this week, and we understood he had someone sitting in for him, but no one has turned up yet, so maybe somebody will be along, but Robert Metz is here. Good to see you. Looks like it's just you and me, Jim. Well, it'll be left and right, to, or center and right today, um, but I thought that we'd take advantage of this, and if uh, Andrew Boulder does uh, join us, that's great, and maybe he's stuck in traffic or something. If he does, fine, we can continue this particular discussion, but I was curious to... to, to ponder how you and I might look at this issue today. Um, a report about the, the task force on poverty in the city, this municipal task force of, of, we assume, to use my favorite phrase, people of goodwill, people who genuinely feel there's a problem and who want to try and solve it. Um, and I use that phrase to describe folks that maybe there's not a, a more conventional way to do it, but people with whom I may disagree, but whom I, I have to acknowledge that in their hearts, they believe they're doing the right thing. So I, I call people like that of all stripes people of goodwill because they, they really think they're trying to do the right thing. I hope all these people are described accurately that way. But it raised an issue for me this morning uh, as to the appropriateness of the public or the, the, the uh, uh, public money tax dollars being used to try to quote, solve the problem of poverty. Now, you had a very interesting editorial in the paper this morning yeah, about a, 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 a similar issue, the issue of, of charitable giving versus taxation and so on. And, and I thought, given your editorial this morning, that perhaps you and I could talk about this a little bit. The idea that, uh, that there is a role for government to play, uh, municipal government here particularly, and I understand they've got a quarter of a million dollars now to try and explore ways to deal with poverty in our community and indeed to, to try to, to uh, rectify some of the problems they see. Is this a legitimate role for government at any level to say, okay, we are going to, A, form a task force, and B, figure out how to, C, beat poverty? Well, it always scares me, Jim, when, when governments set out to do something about an unsolvable problem, such as poverty. Um, you know, you say they have a quarter million budget. I can already imagine the things they're going to spend that on. Um, hiring people to look into the problem, doing studies, um, trying to figure out ways of finding money through government, which means more taxes or fewer choices somewhere down the stream, uh, to alleviate a problem that really... You know, at the heart of it, doesn't really need alleviating, if I can be that blunt. Well, the argument is uh, both sides. One side, the old biblical equation, which I'm going to paraphrase, the poor are always with us. Um, but there are other people who say, no, Bob, you're being cynical here. What do you mean we can't solve this? Look at all the things we have solved. We can solve this problem, too. Well, what's to solve? Are we talking about people starving in the streets? I don't think we are in, in that literal sense. Uh, poverty in Canada is a very different thing from poverty in most of the world. Um, you can certainly say we are our brother's keeper, but how one exercises that responsibility may differ greatly. Um, I happen to believe that uh, in being our brother's keeper, we have to respect our brother's rights and, and, and treat them as an equal. And uh, when I look at government, for example, I think of government basically as a gun. And if I want to help Peter, I don't go pick that gun up to rob Paul and mm -hmm. say, listen, Paul, hand Peter some money. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's that's me, as in my editorial saying this morning, being charitable with other people's money. That is not the essence of charity to me. Um, it has to come from the self. If you're really going mm -hmm. to be giving, you're giving your money, the money that you earned, the time that you have. I mean, we all have this ability to do this. So why do we find it necessary to uh, enforce this responsibility by putting it through government? I think it's a way of avoiding the responsibility of being our brother's keeper. And yet you say you talked about poverty not being the problem here that it is in much of the world. That's true, but, but there are still, we are told, uh, time and time again, there are literally thousands of children in this community right here who go to school hungry every day. 
I mean, how do we equate that? Well, sure, they're, they're, not, they're not starving in the street. They're not living in, in sewage-infested hovels. But if they're not getting enough to eat, if they're not, uh, you know, the, they're not getting warm clothing in the winter and so on, and this, I'm told, is a reality for people in this community, surely we've got to do something about that. And, that and, and, and the acts of individual charity don't seem to be meeting the need. Well, I, I would dispute that. I, I would say, yes, we maybe should do something about it, but I'm saying that of all the options that we could possibly have at our disposal, robbing Peter to pay Paul shouldn't be one of them. What I mean, other options after, do we have? There's giving yourself, there's doing fundraising. There, I mean, people like to give money. You know, I, I've, I've learned this myself. I'm in a business where the only money, for example, the Freedom Party gets is money that we raise voluntarily. Mm -hmm. People have to want to give to us for some specific reason. Sometimes I marvel at what motivates people to give money, the mm -hmm. way they are passionate about it and the joy they get out of giving. Sometimes I feel guilty accepting it mm -hmm. in, in a certain way. So... It, it's not a thing that you have to, I don't believe, really force people to do. Um, again, we can we can make the problem go away. You're talking about all these kids going to school hungry. I mean, we already have a school system that's paid for by the taxpayer. We have a welfare system. We have unemployment insurance. We have all these myriad of social programs, and yet poverty never seems to go away. Why is that? You know, like you say, we'll always have it with us. Well, maybe we should look at that. Why is it? Why, are, why do we have people who are on, on the bottom rung of the economic ladder? Is it necessary that somebody be on the bottom so the rest of us can stand on top of them? No, it has nothing to do with anybody standing on top of anybody I you know I consider myself personally uh, well off in the sense of what I want out of life but compared to other people I'm poor mm -hmm. well I'll tell you that bluntly right up front okay um, but I don't feel disadvantaged in any way I know whenever they release these so-called poverty statistics of wages and income I'm usually under them but uh, you know I'm paying my rent I'm buying my whatever I need to live and and I'm supporting an organization at the same time um, it's, it's a choice you make. I've made this choice. I'm where I am because I made certain choices, and I value what I do more than perhaps the greater income that I might have gotten working somewhere else, which I did do for a while. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, and then there's the issue of personal responsibility to, to, you know, isn't it my responsibility to make sure I don't become a, quote, forced burden on someone else? Uh, I think I see that as a social responsibility mm -hmm. as well, not just the other way around. Um, you know, if we didn't have all these four social programs, I truly believe we could direct our help to the people who truly need help and not have these, uh, you know, just self-serving, I think very self-centered, universal type of programs. Uh, everything from our health care to education um, is based on the idea of I sh I'm entitled to this for free at somebody else's expense. Well, yeah. what about, but the counter-argument, as you well know, is that we, as a, as a community, we are, the strength of our community is in the community of that community, if I can be redundant in that way, use that word in two different senses, and, and that one of the great values we have in coming together as a community is that we can reach out and help each other. And if, it, if, if it's inefficient to do so individually, which was the original argument, I think, for many of the government social programs, that, yeah, a lot of well-meaning people, but the job isn't getting done, uh, so government only, will step in. The only thing that government makes, quote, efficient is the getting money out of people's pockets because it can just pass a law and say, you must pay. That's very efficient. Mm. But it uh, it's a little insulting to the person from whom you're taking the money. It uh, certainly violates that person's individual rights. 
but on the other end, where the money is being spent, it's way less efficient. Government's not efficient at anything, and we know this. Any time the private sector competes with the, with the government sector, it's always more efficient. But the argument and, can be made, Bob, that, that in the past we, we, were, we found ourselves in situations more than once where considerable numbers of our population need specific help, usually financial help. And, and the private sector simply was not there for them. And I think of the Depression, which is a, an extreme example, I will grant you that, but that's where many of our social programs grew out of, were the experiences of the, of the Depression, where we had uh, uh, unmet needs across this country, where the communities did not rise to the challenge, perhaps because they couldn't afford to, perhaps because the community as a whole was impoverished. I don't know. I don't know the stats on that. But the reality was that many, many communities did not meet the challenge. There were people, in those days, literally starving, um, and there were many, many people who were just having a tough time keeping it together at all. The government looked around, for good or ill, looked around and said, well, this isn't working, and we've, somebody's got to do something. The private sector is not meeting this need, so we are going to step in. Now, well, that's what they what, tell us. Is that what happened? Though? What, well, whatever the government does, even if it says the private sector is not meeting its, its uh, obligation, when the government acts, it's taking that obligation out of the private sector anyway. Um, but is that what happened, you ask? I, I don't see it being exactly like that. Certainly there were situations where people were in dire need. You've got to remember our economy back then was not as sophisticated and developed as it was today. We had a lot more trade barriers. We had a lot more interference in, in certain ways that we have gotten rid of today. Um, again, I don't think, it, you know, it's, it's really more of a moral issue than it is an economic or pragmatic issue and I think this is what really divides often the left right and center in politics is is um, you know Jeff so often talks about efficiency he's he, he really as I see it argues from uh, the ends justifies the means mm -hmm. kind of an argument and I'm suggesting instead that your ends must be consistent with your means because the means will become the end especially when you start using government force and government edict to do things you're going to do everything that way because, quote, it's efficient. Sure it is. If, if The efficiency is in overriding other people's choices and overriding their will. Like if I or you refuse to give me money for my cause, uh, by what right do I as an individual for, for any reason have a right? What right do I have to take anything from you? Well, because, like you morally. Have, because you have more than I do and you don't need it. That's the argument. Well... That's not, an, that's not a moral argument. No, but it's the argument that's put, it's clothed in morality. It's, it's immoral for you to live in a, in a situation of plenty when I'm living in a situation of poverty. That's immoral. That's the argument. I'm well, not saying I agree with it, but that's the argument. You see, this is, this is part of why society thinks that earning wealth is somehow wrong or that there is something wrong with it. When, in fact, you know, to be poor, it's very simple. You just do nothing or you make the wrong choices, don't, you know, don't become a success. And I don't mean... Poor. I don't mean success in the sense of Bill Gates. I mean just yeah. a success, you know, just having a, a life that you enjoy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's basically a choice. If someone else brings themselves way above that because of their talents, their maybe even their the opportunities that they had, and they fortunately took them when they did, uh, whatever the reason, one person's wealth does not constitute another person's property, you, or, or poverty, rather. In fact, if, if people are getting wealthy in a free market, they're getting wealthy because they're assisting people's ability to buy whatever they are selling, whether it's a product or a service. Bob Metz and Jim Chapman this morning on Right and Center. Left, <laughs> <laughs> left didn't make it today, but... Uh, left, left today. Left, left. And we're having an interesting discussion on the lesson. We certainly invite you to join us at 643-1290, star 1290 on the Cantil. We'll be back to take your calls right after this. 
Bob Metz and Jim Chapman here. Jeff Schlemmer on holidays, and uh, caller Jim joins us. Good morning, Jim. I'd like to take the position on the left, but boy, they wouldn't want me. <laughs> um, on Sunday, this, is, this is an interesting topic, because uh, on Sunday, our pastor preached about giving. Mm-hmm. Not in the sense of like church giving, but like giving to the poor and giving ourselves to, to causes and, and situations. Then yep. you had the Jesse Davis, uh, Davidson thing on Monday, which was appropriate. Mm-hmm. But there is a verse in Scripture which reads, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be equality. So I said to him afterwards, I said, that sounds a lot like socialism. He says, yes, it is, but it's not forced socialism. It's from the heart. Mm-hmm. And that's Bob's premise, mm-hmm. which I tend to agree. I, you can't legislate the giving. To well, the you, poor. you can, but it's not the right thing to do. No, well, well we do legislate yeah. the giving to the poor, but I don't, I don't believe that's the way to go. Mm-hmm. Somehow we have to motivate people's hearts to give to the poor like they did in the old days. But, Jim, they didn't in the old days. That's the problem. Well, I believe the church was involved in, in, in orphanages and the poor, and, and yeah. I guess there was a stigma back then, too, when you were poor. True, but if you look at the historical record, record you will find that, that, at least in Western society, uh, charity certainly was in evidence, but it was not, it did not ever approach, anywhere near approach the need that was out there. Oh, exactly. You look at a guy like, like um, uh, Bill Gates, who's got $60 billion. He could take $20 billion and feed all the food banks in the United States of America. Bob's premise is, why should he do that? He should do it from his heart, because he wants to. Well, I know he plans to do something like that at some point in his life. Well, you know, right you know now, the expression, the road to hell are paved with good intentions. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I don't know. I think he's pretty well done everything he's planned to do in his life so far. So why would he renege on something that he's made so today? public? Why not do it today? Because today he's still in the marketplace. It's You know, you may say that that $20 billion is just sitting there waiting to be plucked as though it were some, yeah. you know, apples and oranges out in the orchard. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. This was money that was put together in this capital fund that was created by the hard work of a lot of people and the cleverness of a lot of people and well, it's no to be used to, and, and side, to expand but, to the future but but i but i but i challenge you and i say to bill gates to whom much is given much is required we cannot look to government to legislate to the giving of the poor and those in society that beyond because of circumstances whether it be disease or a lack of job i firmly believe that it's our role our responsibility to take care of these people all right, Jim, thanks for the All call. Right, bye-bye. bye-bye. Bob, what do you make of that, the biblical injunction or the, the, the comment that, that Jim made there about to, uh, to those who much is given, much is expected? Well, it's a, it's a truism in a broad sense, but nowhere in the Bible do I see it ever suggest that force is the appropriate means by which to achieve an end. Um, force is, is the thing that I would have always thought was, was anti-ethical to Gee, the whole Christian philosophy. Moses would have argued uh, that. How did they get to the, to the promised land, you know? How do you mean? Well, the force was certainly involved oh. there in having a, you know God's will be manifest on earth. The Old Testament is almost a different uh, set of morality from what happened when the New Testament took over. Um, it was a change in direction of man's thinking that we don't do things this way. Uh, I mean, it's very easy to, to, to use force as the ultimate solution to something that you may want. But then again, someone like Bill Gates may have different plans for that money. He may have big plans for that money that may create untold wealth that he can distribute later when it's his choice to do so. Um, you know, it, it brings up your, your show on Monday regarding Jesse's journey. I mean, this is a wonderful concept. Establishing a $10 million endowment fund from which the investment and interest will go to fund 
research for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. You know, a million dollars a year if you're running at 10%. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, that's the way everything should run. Why, why isn't our government doing this? You know, government is, is, if this was the government doing the same thing, what they would be doing with that $10 million is spending it right away. Mm -hmm. And then, they, what do they have to do then? Then they have to go back again in the future with their, with their cap in hand, mm -hmm. out there begging again in the streets, you know, as, as it was said in the free press. Um, and they're right back where they started. They haven't made any advance. Uh, money must be allowed to accumulate in order to work. Uh, capital is is a thing that you know that, that could be the shortcoming of most businesses when they go under. They mm -hmm. didn't have enough capital. Yeah. They need that amount of money to be sitting there. And unfortunately, we're all trained like sheep. You know that that wherever money sits, it's it's just our right to to redistribute it. And, and what a euphemism for you know taking it from someone else without their consent. Let's go to the phones. It's left, right, and center this morning. Bob Metz and Jim Chapman, the center and right portions of the program. And Brenda joins us. Hi, Brenda. Hi there. Um, how are you today? Just fine, thanks. Good. You know, I, I, I really tend to be falling over to, to the right side here and, and agreeing with quite a bit of, of um, you know, these uh, um, concepts. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I have seen firsthand is that the politicians who, who um, I suppose you could say they're left-wingers, you know, they just want to give money to the poor. Mm -hmm. uh, simply because they're human beings, yeah. and and um, well, I shouldn't say that. So, um, uh, you know, um, now we understand what you mean. It, we, you know, every human being has dignity, mm -hmm. and and if we love people, we love ourselves, and we love people, we love the human race. Yeah. Then we reach out to them. Mm -hmm. But by whose criteria do we decide who needs more and who needs less? We do not have an equal distribution of the public purse among people. People have been forced into a situation because we have a social democracy where it's not simply the fact that we're people, whether black, white, um, you know, a child or an elderly person. It's, it's um, our, our worth and our dignity is, is being judged by what we do. And if we simply say that we are going to work, all of a sudden we are become more respectable. There's nothing to say that the work that we do is a contribution or a benefit to humanity. And I think we all know that someone that chooses to work at something that they enjoy does a much better job than someone who is working because they feel compelled yeah. to go to work yeah, good point. in order to gain human dignity. But, Brenda, where do we go then? How do we mobilize that reality and that truth that you've just brought forward? How do we mobilize that to benefit the society as a whole? I think it starts, and it's got to begin with a basic respect for humanity. We have to love people. We have to look at every single person, whether they are the derelict in the street, yeah. Or the corporate CEO. Yeah, but you know, we with don't. With the same, we have to. But it's we don't, Brenda. But we thing. don't do. We don't look at the derelict on the street. Most of us don't look at that derelict with the same feeling of affection and understanding and kinship that we do for members of our families or people that we think are closer to our interpretation of what existence ought to be about. We don't do that. That's true. We don't. And I guess that's the point that I'm making is we don't. And that is the source of the problem. 
Well, I, I don't know. I think you were talking on, on one hand there, Brenda, you're talking about dignity. And, and to me, I agree with your statement wholeheartedly that we should look at the poorest person and the richest person with the same dignity. And to me, that means respecting that individual's right to whatever choices they make. It also means, and this is the hard part for most people, uh, allowing that person to basically follow through on the consequences of the choices they make. But Bob, we and sometimes we, you know, we, we might get very emotional and be very upset that that so and so has made a choice that we don't agree with, and the consequences could be poverty, sickness, you know, illness, whatever, and uh, we might want to interfere with that person. Um, that's where you get on dangerous ground. But we do interfere all the time. If you, you were to decide you want to chop your arm off, for example, and you let you didn't just do it quietly in your home, you kind of spread the word that I'm tired of my left arm, I'm going to chop it off, society through various forces would intervene and say, no, Bob, that's not a good thing for you to do. Well, How is that any different from society intervening with somebody who's perhaps in the, in the clutches of drugs, for example, and is a derelict on the, on the sidewalk somewhere? We won't let you chop your arm off because we, we think that that's a consequence that you should not have to face, but we will let that guy continue to lie in the street. Well, you've picked an interesting example. Chopping your, one's arm off is somewhat of an irrational act, and if someone's there who's in a position to do something about you know, attempting to stop someone from doing that, that would be a, a normal thing to but do. But isn't, isn't it an irrational act to, to do whatever it takes to get you lying on that street? Well, okay, a lot of people say it's irrational to smoke cigarettes. Is it my business to go into somebody else's home and grab that pack of cigarettes out of their home and slap them on the wrist and maybe tell them, listen, I don't like what you're doing, you're hurting yourself, I'm going to put you in jail for some additional time on top of what you're doing to yourself? Is that rational? Is that, is that the, what other, you know, that's the choice you're giving me. You're saying we either have to take that approach or the other approach is just not acceptable under any well, circumstances. But we already do take that approach. We already uh, do. We've already well, said, we've already look said. Look at the consequences. It hasn't solved anything, has it? Brenda, last word to you. Um, I think that Bob needs to realize that choices are opportunities that, that, that are thrown people's way by their circumstances in life. Um, for example, um, I'm a social assistant recipient, not, by, not because I plotted and planned this choice and this opportunity to come my way. Mm -hmm. It's because of <clears throat> something that happened to me as a result of of um, a, a criminal activity of someone else. Yes. I was an abused wife. My children were abused children. Mm -hmm. Now, there was a lot of compassion and there was intervention, not interference, intervention. That's a, that's a good term. On, on the part of right-wing, or left-wing, right-wing, benevolent political system mm -hmm. who had sympathy and compassion and saw my and my children's worth and dignity as a human being initially. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, started up programs like battered women's shelters and a family benefit system or social assist, you know, welfare, whatever term yeah. you want to use, system. But having reached out for that help and accepted it, all of a sudden, it's no longer help that I am, it's no longer perceived as help that I am accepting and receiving, but a choice that I have made to be a burden on society. And, and my worth and dignity as a human being and the sympathy of the public has just vanished 
But, Brenda, you know what Dr. Laura would say. Funny, oh, I was Dr. Just Laura. That. I know no, exactly no, what Dr. But, Laura would But you know what Dr. Laura would point out, I think, the following two points, and maybe perhaps some more. Maybe Bob has some more. Dr. Laura would ask you, um, in your heart of hearts, can you truthfully say that when you married the gentleman who, who turned out to be the abuser, you had no inkling that he was going to turn out that way? Because in I think if Dr. Laura, I mean, if I went on the radio program with her, she wouldn't have time to analyze the situation, and her knee-jerk re reaction would but, but be, that's not I chose to marry him. But I think that she would also be aware of the fact that um, if she knew the whole story, she would realize that um, there's a lot of people out there who change whose behavior changes no, and, and whose that, psychology but, but, but changes that's, but under that's, the stress But, of Brenda, that's why I asked you the question. If you could say no when I married the individual, and I'm not talking about you particularly, I'm just saying and it is a general rule. Yeah, okay. I think if you can say, no, there was absolutely no inkling, I saw no sign of this at all, then, then you have a legitimate case. But you know very well that there are a whole lot of women out there who marry abusive men who know before they marry them that that's the kind of men they are and they think somehow that they're going to change them or whatever. Uh, and I'm not saying they're right or wrong. I'm just saying that that's why Dr. Laura would ask that question. Because if you can't say, and you've, uh, you've indicated that you can, that, that, that the situation changed, the individual changed, that's fine. But if you can't say that, and many people can't, then that was a conscious decision on your part. You made a bad decision. The second part of that is, for any woman in modern society... Or man, because there are men in no, 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 but yeah. any woman in a modern society, in this society today who does not adequately prepare herself to survive economically without a man is closing her eyes to the realities of our civilization. So that would be the second thing that I think Dr. Laura would ask. You say, you know, you just kind of ended up here. How is it that you don't have marketable skills? How is it that you can't go out and support yourself and your family today? Yeah, those are valid points, but you still have to be aware of the fact that people are making their choices based on the opportunities that are available. And well, if a social assistance or a social democracy yeah. such as ours yeah. exists, yeah. and we are raised yeah. from childbirth knowing that that exists, yeah. then that door is open, and when we make our choice, mm -hmm. we, we're weighing the risks. Mm -hmm. So if you take away, what did they call it, the social safety net. Yeah, but see if that, there was but no Brenda, that's, social but that's safety not, net, that's people not, wouldn't take the risk. Now, that's not really what we're talking about per se, and that's not, I wasn't, I hope you don't think I was trying to, to attack you at all on the issue. But but the point I was trying to make was, you had raised earlier, you had you talked about consequences and so on, that sometimes, you know, we make these decisions given the options we have. I think an argument can be made that that's not a, that's not a valid statement, that you had the same options as anybody else had. Yeah. You had the full range. You may not have and recognized And I took them. the risk, but I would not, being a conscientious person, mm -hmm. if the opportunity, if the chance wasn't there that I could survive otherwise, yeah. I would not have made that choice. So are, and that's are you saying where we, are you I'm saying, crossing over to the left okay. wing, are you right saying, wing, and saying that if we had no public purse yes. in this country yes. and there was no social safety net, yeah. many, many people would not be taking that chance. Right. Interesting thought today. Thanks, Brenda. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Robert, let me ask you whether you agree well, with that. No, I don't. Uh, I, I would almost say I know more people who have avoided taking risks because of, of, of the comfort they, they have with a social safety net under them. And I think if, if you talk to most people in industry and business, they tell you that that's a big disadvantage. If people 
that I know who have taken the risks are the ones who get away from that, any kind of safety net, and, and take a risk. That's what a risk means. But Brenda's talking about a different kind of risk. She's talking about taking risks in personal relationships and taking risks in getting married without having uh, training to look after yourself. Those kinds of risks. She's saying that there are people, and women in this case, that are more inclined to take the chance because ultimately, whether they admit it or not at the time, they know, well, the very worst thing that's going to happen, I'm not going to starve to death, you know, and I'm not going to live on the street because there's a social safety net. So I'll take it. Maybe I can reform him. He's not such a bad guy. Maybe I can turn him around. So you're saying they're looking at the marriage itself as the social safety net? No. Marriage to a wrong kind no, of no, person the, or what? You... They're looking at the social safety net as the, ulti as the ultimate salvation if they make the wrong decision with the marriage. It's, you, don't have to, you don't have to be as hard-nosed. You don't have to be as selective. Well, another way of maybe wording that would be to say that they're looking to the the forced enforcement of their consequences, of their action on, on, on other people, basically. That's what we're really saying. Um, if I'm not responsible for my own actions, um, you know, uh, I, I, the law will allow me to make someone else responsible but for it. But Brenda's saying take away the social, or suggesting if we took away the social safety net, it might be one way to minimize this kind of destructive behavior. And you alluded earlier oh. to the fact that we've spent all of this money and we're no further ahead. I'm, I'm not sure if I actually interpret it that way. If that's what you're saying she, she well, was saying, I might agree with that. Let's assume that that is what she's saying. That's well, what I sort of got that sense of Although well, she's not suggesting we abandon it at wholesale, but if we did, it would have that result. Well, you know, again, the concept of a social safety net is really irrelevant, again, to the moral issue. The issue is, do we build a social safety net out of some, some system of voluntarism, or do we do use forced taxation? And, and taxation is such an easy answer to so many things. Uh, we, we basically run so many things in this country on tax taxes that whenever we need more money in health care, well, we have to consider how that's going to affect education. And if we want more in education, we have to worry about how that's going to affect health care or welfare or, or the myriad of things that government is now responsible for. So it, it's, it like all goes into the same pot, and there's no differentiation of what the money should be used for, where it should go. Uh, to me, there is no, no safety net there. It's only a promise that future taxpayers will have enough money. To me, I see a $10 million endowment fund as a safety net. Mm -hmm. Good point. Uh, I want to raise something slightly different here, too, about the issue of taxation. I just bought a car. I haven't bought a car like Here's Cash Money for a very long time. I've leased and I've done other things. It's the first time I've done this for many, many, many years. And... Uh, you talk about sticker shock. I didn't get sticker shock from the price of the car. I got sticker shock from the check I had to write to the government for the taxes. Oh. Right between the eyes, 15% of the value of that car, which was, wasn't a huge amount, but was fairly significant price. And that stopped me in my tracks about taxes like nothing in the last 10 years has. And, I mean, I'm, I, we talk every day in one way or another about taxes on this program or almost every day. I'm faced with it in the reading I do every day. And, you know, taxes, 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 taxes. I pay income tax. I pay all the tax everybody else does. But that smacked me right between the eyes and really made me, drew me up short and said, wait a minute, you know, all of this stuff that has sort of been, in a sense, almost theoretical because it's a dollar here, two dollars there, ten dollars here, the income tax comes off your paycheck, you never have it in your hand anyway. Suddenly this is money that I had in my hand, and now I have to give it back thousands of dollars. Can you imagine how you'd feel if, if we could take literally what the Fraser Institute does every year when they determine whatever tax freedom day is mm -hmm. and determine what the average Canadian worker has to work before he's done his tax obligation. Mm -hmm. It's more than half the year yeah. in Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, if you had to pay that out of pocket the same way you paid your taxes on that car, 
Boy, you'd be thinking about taxes in a totally different well, uh, light. I don't. You'd be paying them. I think we'd have had that, revolts right. in the streets long since. And that's one of the great reasons to keep taxes visible. Six four three. Sorry. No, go ahead. Just so people can react to that. Six four three twelve ninety star twelve ninety on the Cantel. When they talked about the GST, bring the GST in. I actually was in favor of it because it is a visible tax. Unfortunately, it didn't have the effect that I hoped it would. People uh, sort of looked at it and said, "Yeah, okay," and did what I did, wrote the check, and got on with it. Uh, we are open to your calls and comments this morning at six four three twelve ninety star twelve ninety on the Cantel, left, right, and center, which uh, without Schlemmer, but with Metz and Chapman, we'll be right back. Bob Metz and Jim Chapman here, Judge Schlemmer off on holidays. We're taking a look today at the issue of giving, at the issue of uh, the government's role in, in, in helping people who need help in our society. We had a very interesting experience here on Monday morning. Um, most of you, I'm sure, are aware of it, but for those of you who aren't, totally unplanned. I was just, I was very steamed about something at the top of the show, about some comments that had been made about Jesse's journey, a father's tribute. And, uh, and I issued a challenge to our listeners and put some money on, some of my, my wife and I put our money on the table and said, Here's what we're doing. What are you going to do? And in two hours, we raised over $10,000. Now, Bob, I want to ask you, because I know you were aware we were doing that, and I know uh, uh, um, you are supportive, you indicated earlier, you're supportive of this kind of an idea. Do you think it was that successful because people understood that this is an ongoing program, that it's an endowment program? Do you think that makes a difference to people? No. Why did they do it then? Why did they give the money? They did it because they heard you speaking with a very uh, convinced and convicted point of view and believing strongly in what you believe in. And I really think to a large degree that was what a lot of people were responding to and, and, and seeing the justification of the cause. I don't think they're worried about the, uh, the funding of it and how it's put together. I mean, uh, this was a charitable appeal and, and, you know, for someone to walk across the country to do this kind of thing is a remarkable price to pay to earn that kind of money. It's not it's not free, you know, in that sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, again, is part of what I think would motivate people to give money, is to see that the people who are at the head of this thing, the people who support it, are right into it. They're not just asking for money like a government bureaucrat, give me your money and, you know, see you next year. Um, it's a totally different dynamic, and, and I think you just saw an incredible display of it on Monday morning, which is how I, how I have found people to respond when you strike the right chord. It's not always the issue itself. It could be something totally on the side. So as a society, then, how do we tap into that? How do we ensure that the many good causes that are out there, poverty among them, or elimination of poverty, or however you want to phrase that, there are many, many people who feel as strongly about those issues as I felt about that on Monday. How do we communicate that effectively in a society? Because government tells us, and the government tells us implicitly that we can't do it. We can't communicate it, so they'll take care of it for us. You don't have to communicate the message. We know what you want. We'll just go and get the money for you. Well, when the government takes 50% of our, our basic working wages away in taxes, we're already handicapped in our ability to respond to the things we would like to. Uh, you know, I always used to jokingly say if, if government was really interested interested in these charitable causes and in really helping the poor, rather than becoming the agent of distribution, they could do what they do with car insurance, for example. Force you to give money. <laughs> you know, but give money to the insurance company or the charity or the school of your choice. Mm -hmm. uh, why would that be any different? To me, that would be far more, quote, efficient. Mm -hmm. It's a little more fascistic in, in terms of, you know, historical application but you cut of the it. government out of but there. you cut the government out there's no middleman there so why not just pass a law saying that all parents 
must pay so much money to the school of their choice and not, not tell them what school they have to go to mm -hmm. and not tell them what is being taught in the school. Mm -hmm. um, why, why not? You, have you got any reasons why, why they wouldn't do it that way? Well, I don't know. The churches certainly used to, and many of them still do, used to tie that yeah. was expected as part of being that community that you would give 10% of your earnings, periods, end of story, no ifs, ands, or buts. And you would turn that into the church for the good works that the church did. Uh, and people in those religious communities, do they do, yeah. and in, in, in religious communities where that's an important part of their faith, people do it and have done it to ad infinitum. I mean, it's part of their existence. It's not, they don't question, they don't argue, it's just they pay it. That's right. But if and they don't pay it, they don't go to jail, they don't have their property impounded, they simply are less included as members of their faith community. You know, it concerns me too, like, look at what's happening right now with property taxes in the city, mm. the, the, the confusion and the, and, and the whole concept that, that your taxes should somehow be based on the value of your property. It's so alien to economics uh -huh. that uh, it, it's amazing that anyone would even support it. To me, the taxes any property owner should be paying will be, should be related to the services the city is delivering to that property. Yes. And it shouldn't go any further than that. Yep. Uh, the fact, you know, I look at, we have an aging population, you know, it used to be the ideal that you could own your own home, not worry about having to make huge payments, which are now your taxes, that mm -hmm. look bigger than your mortgage payment looked 20 years ago, mm -hmm. and have the security of having that home and not having to be looked after by the government. Now we have the curious inversion where people can't afford to stay in their homes because of taxes that are being, in effect, expropriated to help other poor people in the community. Yeah. It, it becomes a vicious circle and you create more poverty in the process. We need to have a system of, of capitalistic assistance. Uh, you know, the earlier caller, Jim, talked about uh, you know, the difference between forced socialism and, and a voluntary socialism, though I disagree with his terminology mm -hmm. there because socialism means force. That's the distinguishing characteristic. As soon as you have voluntary socialism, you're back to capitalism because that's what it's all about, mm -hmm. choice, making mm -hmm. your own choices, nobody forcing you to do things. People in a capitalistic system do social things. Capitalism is a social system. It's not an a system of rampant individualism or anything. It's based on very strict rules. Uh, you know, your, your rights end where mine begin and vice versa. And uh, those are the rules that socialism t attempts to destroy. You have the right to your money, and I think I have a cause that, that is more superior to, to what you want to do with your money, and therefore socialism allows me to take money from you. I want to ask you about the tax thing, because this is sort of along the same lines, and you raised this issue of property tax. Um, it has been suggested, and, and, and quite frankly, I agree with you. I don't think that the value-based assessment is the way to do it. It's insane. It, it, it makes no sense it at all. It also makes a person want to not keep their home up. Exactly. Or, or, you know, keep it in repair, because if you do that, you're going to pay a penalty. Yeah, it just it makes no sense. One of the alternatives, and although I know you're not a great fan of taxation, one of the alternatives that's been suggested and is, in fact, in place in some American cities is municipal income tax. Oh, uh, no. to <laughs> to, to, to replace this, uh, the kinds of municipal taxes that we pay now. Now, given that in the world we live in, they're not going to just do away with municipal tax and, and hope for the best. They would, you know, if anybody, if anything was going to happen to it, they would have to replace it with something else. What should they replace it with? What should they replace property taxes yeah, with? The, the, well, the system we have today. Is, is income tax not a good way to do it? It's, we're looking at it backwards. The question is, what should we stop spending money on? rather than where should we cut taxes. As long as we're spending money on the outflowing end, uh, there's going to be a tremendous vacuum on, on the other end, and government will be desperate to get money from wherever it can. Like I say, 
municipal governments shouldn't be funding things. I don't believe they should be funding arts and galleries and, and convention centers and, and a host of things that they're getting into t these days. Um, these things are very expensive. have never made money in, in, ever, as far as I know, and anyone I've seen even locally, and yet they're very expensive to homeowners. Homeowners should not be held responsible for that kind of thing. That's a private sector issue. So, uh, again, if we had the municipality only charging for services provided to the home, and that would be your garbage service, your roads, your sewers, your basics, you know, the, uh -huh. the actual services you get, um, you wouldn't have these problems. People would pay it quite willingly, and they would know that would be the cost of operating their home. And even within those services, it should be as competitive as possible. This is Talk of the Town in 1290 CJBK, left, right, and center. Jeff Schlemmer on vacation today. Bob Metz and Jim Chapman here. Uh, incidentally, just as an aside, if you have been wondering or been perplexed about this tax issue, and uh, uh, I wrote a column on it on Sunday. There have been a couple other things in the paper. Today, the paper has what I thought was a pretty good explanation in detail as to what happened and what you can expect. You won't like it, but it does, uh, I think, kind of clarify. And now to support what Bob just said about spending money where we shouldn't be spending it. Now I'm told council is, uh, is going to put some money towards having a, some kind of a package prepared and distributed to everybody to explain what went wrong. Uh, uh, more money, more money thrown away. Well, that's true, and uh, it should have been explained properly the first time around, but uh, this is one of those things you have to explain. You at least have to tell people while you're taking the money from them. Um, even though it can't be justified even at the root. You know, the basic truism is that you, the municipality has a blank check to spend X dollars and it just has to get that money back out of the, out of the municipality any way it can. Do you think yeah. this is going to make any difference next year at budget time? Do you think that the population is going to remember this? Um, <laughs> I'm kind of cynical about that. People have to be hurting real bad, and enough of them have to be hurting real bad before you're going to expect any major changes at the polls. And uh, other countries around the world have, have demonstrated quite clearly that people are, are willing to put up with quite a lot, especially when they, they have this feeling that they can't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. There's nothing you can do to change it, that even if you appeal your taxes, the odds are you're going to lose, you know, although there are a few victories here and there. Mm -hmm. um, but you pretty well have the, the cards stacked against you, so most people uh, reluctantly go along and try to beat the system in different ways, you know. Uh, any way they can do anything on the underground economy, they'll start going there, and that's been the experience of every country that gets to a taxation burden that becomes too heavy for the populace to bear. Okay, I got a question for you then, a moral question. Is it immoral to duck the taxation in your society, knowing that if you manage to evade some taxes by going to the underground economy, your neighbor is going to have his tax load increased. Is it moral for you to do that? It's funny you would ask that. I encourage people to do that as mm -hmm. often as possible. Because, uh, for example, suppose the people in the Soviet Union, you know, practice the morality of the state being superior and everything the state does, we're going to give everything to them. They would have starved to death. Mm -hmm. Had it not been for a thriving underground economy that, that got them everything they needed from toilet paper to the basic foodstuffs, mm -hmm. uh, they would not have survived. They, they had, their moral obligation was to evade the government, get away, get around the government and, and you know, survive in some way that you can and, and to hide anything that you own from the government but for you fear can, they'll take it. But you can survive in our society without doing that. You just don't have quite as much disposable income. You still survive. There's no question of survival. 
Well, that's just a matter of degree. Uh, I think the principle applies the same, and I think it comes comes down to everyone's moral choice uh, in terms of where they think government has gone too far and where they haven't. There's there's no legislation that's going to affect a person's um, moral judgment of what is right and wrong in terms of what government is doing. I know it's difficult for people to believe, but, but some ancient cultures have actually had voluntary taxation, and it worked. And the people who gave the taxes were generally the wealthy, and they were proud to do it. And, they, and, and, and you know, they were almost, I'm not going to use the word worship, but certainly admired. Well, it was a sign but of status to yes, be able to do that. tremendous status. Today we look at the rich and we go, oh, that guy doesn't deserve his money, we should yeah. take it away from him. And I'm thinking, man... We've come a long way in 2,000 years, haven't we? We'll be back in just a moment uh, in the year 1998 on Talk of the Town. The last couple of minutes here of Left, Right, and Center. Gord joins us. Hi, Gord. Hi, Jim. Yes, sir. You guys were discussing uh, taxes and mm -hmm. expropriating property, basically. Um, right now in Toronto, there's a, a case where downtown merchants are, are fighting the city from uh, taking their land away. And this has gone to the court, and the court just threw it out and said, well, you don't have any rights. And uh, I think that's very important to this discussion. People who own property and people who earn wealth don't have rights in this country. Well, uh, Gordon, uh, forgive me, but don't, I think you're oversimplifying what the court said just a little bit, aren't you? Uh, well, okay, you want me to read you what it said? Well, they didn't say you have no... Where does it say you have no rights? Read me that part. Well, okay, well... Uh, I can't find it right away here, but, well, basically the government said that, uh, noting that the redevelopment project began as a community initiative, uh, were being characterized as a drastic city step for the purpose of getting different stores in there, and that's exactly what happened. Yes. What happened was this America, big American company came in and said, hey, we're going to build a big complex downtown, mm -hmm. and we need property. Mm -hmm. And the city said, oh, well... We'll just get rid of those small stores down there, those little people, yeah. and throw them out. Mm -hmm. And they've done it. Mm -hmm. That means they have no rights. <laughs> well, uh, were these little people, did they own the property or they just rent or lease the property? Now, most of them are owners. Well, then I, my assumption would be, and I'm certainly not defending the city, my assumption would be that they were compensated at fair market value for the, for the property. Okay, well, one person bought his property for $6 million and the city's going to pay him three and a half. Well, obviously that just doesn't wash. What do you mean it doesn't wash? Well, I mean, it doesn't make, that's not fair. But well, of course not. The whole thing the isn't fair, whether it's for fair market or not. They don't want to move. The city's come in with a gun and said, you got to, mm -hmm. and that's it. Mm -hmm. Who cares if they give them three and a half million dollars? fact is, they don't want to move. I mean, if I own my property here, mm -hmm. where I live, mm -hmm. and the city comes along and says, you got to move, what choice do I have? Well, what is, should you have a choice? Uh, say, for example, just to use a more, a more clear-cut example, I've only got about one minute left here, Gord. Say that the city wants to put in a new road, and you have the only house in the whole area, and your house is going to sit right in the middle of that road, but it's going to benefit traffic patterns and support business and blah, 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 blah. Should you have the right to say, no, I'm going to stay in my house, I don't care about the rest of you? Yeah. Okay, fair enough. So uh, I, I would say that the people who own the property have the prior rights to those who wish convenience. All right, Gord, appreciate the call. Okay. Thank you, sir. Wish we had more time to talk about that. Yeah. Robert, thank you, sir. An interesting you, day Jim. today, and we'll see you again next Wednesday. Yeah. And we'll see you tomorrow on the next edition of Talk of the Town.